So we're longing for a faith that works, uh, a faith that's much more than uh, simply uh, uh, something that we give intellectual or academic assent to. Uh, and we're going to get into uh, some of the verses that are right at the heart of what James is talking about uh, in our passage uh, this morning. You can find it all in the usual place, subscribe in the usual way. Uh, uh, James is the brother of Jesus. So his dad and mum, Mary and Joseph, he was the leader of the Jerusalem church and he writes this letter to Christians that were now scattered all over the empire at a really tough time to be a Christian. Uh, and this letter in James is not for the faint-hearted. This letter in James is not for the fearful. Uh, it is for those who have begun to understand that Jesus is everything. And as we saw in week one, James, the brother of Jesus, had come to understand that his older brother was the person to give everything for, and he was the one to serve, even if it means laying down your life. And James is a really hard book to understand unless you have become captivated by Jesus, and unless you've glimpsed that he is the one to whom we should give everything that we have. He is is the one who in return gives us life beyond measure. We're picking up this morning then in verse uh, 19 of uh, chapter 1 and uh, here we go. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. That's easy enough and quite straightforward. As you've heard people say, you have two ears and one mouth, so shut up, stupid. But why does he mention anger? What's the anger all about mixed in with these verses? And how does his thinking about anger help us understand what he's about to say to us as these verses unfold? I think what James is beginning to say to us as he highlights this issue of anger is that we should be quick to listen because in listening we're setting aside our own agenda. When we get angry, it's so often because we feel misunderstood or because we feel judged or because we feel that we're not being heard. In other words, often we feel angry because our own agenda is not being acknowledged or fed or supported or understood. And Paul says, look, you have to be really, really quick to listen. Sorry, James says, quick to listen and slow to anger because if you're going to listen, you need to understand the, the ability, you need to have the ability, you need to understand the dynamic of setting aside your own agenda. And what he's trying to be so honest about is that for many of us, maybe all of us, when we feel that our own agenda is not being understood or heard or embraced, anger rises within us. We are angry that people do not see things from our point of view. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? So, quick to listen. Setting aside your own agenda because human anger does not produce, verse 20, the righteousness that God 
desires. Adopt a position that learns not to be seeking your own agenda. Now, just like in James chapter 1, verse 1, the servant idea, everything on its head, so James again continually reminds us that as we embrace the Jesus life, all our normal reactions, all our normal patterns of behavior need to be turned completely upside down. Set aside your own agenda because it does not bring about God's righteousness. And... Because, as he will go on to say now in verse 21, it will be impossible to do what's coming next if you tend to live a life dominated by your own agenda. Look at it with me, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. First big idea this morning is about your attitude. Humbly accept the word of God. If we're not willing to listen, if that's our position, if that's the position we adopt in our lives, if we're seeking our own agenda, it will become almost impossible when we come to the Bible, to behave anti to type, to behave differently to the way we're behaving in every other sphere of our lives. So unless I've learned to listen, unless I've learned to lay aside my own agenda, when I come to God's Word, I'll find it almost impossible to humbly accept the Word of God. So what's your attitude as you come to God's Word? There are numerous attitudes that I think we can recognize are in us all of the time in different degrees. So sometimes our attitude when we come to God's Word is one of duty. I feel good that I've got through my quiet time for the second day in a row and I feel good about that. Okay, I've got through... A quiet time, one day, and I feel good about that. So there's a sense of, of, of duty. I, can't, I know that I should do this. I know this is for my good. I know that I must push on and make this happen, and it becomes all about uh, our duty. Perhaps a, a little step up from duty is desperation. I'm coming to God's Word because I'm desperate about something in my life. I'm hurt, I'm upset, I need guidance, I need comfort, so I'm looking for a verse and I'm coming to God's Word. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Have you ever opened the Bible in desperation or God, speak to me? Jonathan urinated against the tree or something like that. That is a verse in the Bible. I didn't just make that up. That's actually in there. And we come to God... Not out of a sense of duty in that moment, but desperation. I need you to speak to me. Maybe we come to God's word with a sense of delight because we're longing to learn something new. So I can resonate with this as kind of a a teacher, preacher. I love seeing something in God's word that I haven't seen before. So I love listening to people 
preaching or teaching if it helps me see something new or differently. And I can come to those moments with a sense of delight because I'm looking forward to what I might intellectually grasp and understand because of that encounter. I'm looking for information that will illuminate my mind. And then fourthly, and you may be thinking of these in ascending order, and to a certain extent that might be true, duty, desperation, desire. Sometimes we come to God's word with a sense of delight. I I love him and I just want to get to know him more. Anyone know what I'm talking about? But have you noticed about all four of those things, the agenda is still my own. It's my duty or it's my desperation or it's my delight and or desire. I'm coming to God's word still with the emphasis, it's all about me. It's about what God's doing in me. It's about whether I can understand more that will help my mind be illuminated for me. It's about my desperation being met. It's about my conscience being uh, solved through uh, uh, the process of duty and so on. And James says, no, you've got to start from a totally, totally, totally different place. You've got to come quick to listen and you've got to come humbly without your agenda to accept the word. It's a laying down of me, of you, of us. Look at it another way. Is the Bible above me or below me? Is the Bible above me or below me? If the Bible is below me, then I decide... What bits I like and don't, what bits I embrace or don't, what bits I believe or don't, what bits I'm going to live by or don't, it's below me. I I decide. I love the bits about heaven, so I'm embracing them. I don't like what it says about hell, so I'm ignoring it. I love the bits about Jesus saying, Calm all you who are weary and I'll give you rest. I love that, Jesus. But I'm not too chuffed about what he says. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off or gouge out your eye. I don't like that as much. So I'll concentrate on the Jesus that I can come to with my burdens and all of the rest. I just love it when when I can gather in fellowship with my Christian friends, but I'm not sure what Jesus meant when he said go to another oikos, to another social group and make your home with them. I'm not sure. I don't like that. So I'll stick with what I know, which is where I am. Uh, Can you see what we're doing all the time? We're we're coming to it. The Bible's below me and I I will be the judge and jury as to, uh, and and James says, no, 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 no. You've got to be quick, quick, to listen, which means you get rid of the anger of your own agenda, which you get rid of the demands of self, quick to listen and humbly accept the word of God. If the Bible is above me, I can't do any of those things other than to bow and say it's all or nothing. Now, I, I fully understand There are different types of literature in the Bible, and we interpret in different ways. So um, we can talk about that, but don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible is above me. It's God's Word. And James says, look, you've got to come humbly. You may not like it. Hey, I don't like a lot of it. 
You may not agree with it. I don't agree in the flesh with a lot of it. It will mess up your life if you try and follow it. It will present you with difficulties and obstacles and it will give you problems you never knew could be problems. You haven't seen a problem till you've read the Bible and tried to live it. That's what will give you struggles and difficulties. But as James says, it's either all for Jesus or nothing. And you come to his word humbly with it being above you and you're bowing to the Lord Jesus and therefore willing to listen with an open heart to all that he has to say. God says through James, I'm looking for people who will humbly accept it. I have to say, friends, this is a really high calling. And it's no surprise that halfway through the Gospels, the penny dropped with Jesus' congregation. Yeah, I don't know how long it took Jesus, but I'm looking forward to that day when suddenly the penny drops. And one day, they're on the hillside. Look like another day, healing, preaching, teaching, all of the stuff, gathering disciples around, teaching, learning them. And then almost out of the blue. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was like it was just one more thing that they just couldn't put up with or swallow any more. And we read in John chapter 6 that after some of the teachings of Jesus that they thought he's taking the biscuit this time, from this time, many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What were they saying? They were saying, this word is below me. I'm making a decision. This word is, I'm the judge of whether this is right or wrong. I'm the judge as to whether I'm following or not. I'm the judge as to how I live my life or not. And many turned back. We were happy with you, Jesus. We love this, 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 and this. But if you're going to go to that place, we're not coming. We, we, we love being with you, Jesus. And that moment was fantastic. And that was exceptional. And we, we, we were so glad we were there. But if you're going to say that, that, and that, then, then we're out of here. We're not coming with you there. And I wonder whether for some of us, we follow Jesus. But there is something in God's word that when you saw it, or when you heard it, or when you understood it, you said in your spirit, of course you'd never say it out loud because that would be a non-Christian kind of thing to do, but in your spirit you said, well if that's what Jesus really wants, then I'm not going there. I'll do all this, I love all this, but if that's what he says, I'm not following to that place. So the question, where are you in danger of turning back? Where are you as you read this Jesus, magnificent, beautiful, upside down, totally wacky, weird way to live? And he says, follow, and you followed here, here, and here. Where are you in danger of going, but I'm not going there? Where are you in danger of turning back? And it could be in our understanding We love the idea that Jesus is God's son and came to save the world. But when Jesus said, I am the way, it's only Jesus. You might go, I'm not going there. I I, I don't want that. that's, that's That's a hard thing to believe. That's a hard thing to follow. At that point, maybe some of us are in danger of turning back. When Jesus said, look, I'm the way. There is no other way. 
You can have as many religions as there are grains of sand on the seashore, but I am the only way. And at that point, many people through the ages, many people today have gone, I'm turning back. I can't, I can't, I can't embrace that. But maybe it's a, it's a character trait. Jesus, as he was nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them. He said, love your enemies. And maybe at that point, we're going, um, well, I'm turning back because I hate my neighbor and I'm not going to put it right. I'm turning back because I'm at war with somebody and I, I'm not going to sort it out or, or whatever it might be. And, and then relationally, we get to this point where we say, I'm turning back. This is too difficult. This is too hard. I'm not going to that place. So it might be an understanding of truth. It might be a character trait. You know, we, we might be saying, well, I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to follow Jesus, but I, I actually have some needs, some physical needs, some emotional needs, some sexual needs, whatever they might be. And I'm going to make sure they get met however I choose because I need those needs met. And in that area of our life, we're, we're turning back. Where are you turning back? Maybe an act of obedience when Jesus says, I want you to give me everything. And you go, Lord, I'm going to give you everything, but I'm not going to use my home for you. I'm not going to be hospitable. I'm not going to welcome people around my table. And we've turned back. We've liked those people in John 6, so this is too hard. If that's where Jesus is going, if that's what he's saying, I'm out of here. I'm done. Where are you in danger of turning back? Will you humbly accept the word of God. You can see now, why can't you? This only makes sense if you're totally devoted to Jesus. The the letter to James is totally mad if you're not radical for Jesus. And it makes no sense if you're not all out for the Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We come now in verse 22, if you're still with me. Good. We come now to verse 22, if you're still with me. Nervous laughter. To the verse that in a sense sums up the whole of this letter. And if you get to Easter and you wonder why I took ten sermons or whatever it is to cover James. um, When this is all he's saying in this one verse. I'll wonder that with you as well. Verse 22. But before we get to verse 22. Don't turn to it. But I'm going to read you a a verse in Luke's Gospel, the words of Jesus. What I love about James is because Jesus was his brother, he he seems to have a really close affinity with the teachings of Jesus. And uh, we see the teachings of Jesus mimicked uh, uh, very closely in a way. They're not with Paul, for example, who didn't live and walk with Jesus in the way that James uh, uh, did. Luke 6 verse 45 says this, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Proof of attitude is in action. Proof of attitude is in action. Uh, And that, sorry, excuse me, here we go. Uh, back to James, James 1 verse 22. So do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So it, Jesus has taught that what your attitude is, what's in your heart, will come out in your actions. And James is now saying exactly the same thing. That if your heart is right, if your attitude is right, that you come to God's word humbly and open, then that will result in right action. Right attitude leads to right 
action. So do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. The first big idea is attitude. The second big idea is action. Now, if Bible-believing churches, sorry, in Bible-believing churches, and this is a sweeping generalization, but generalizations are helpful because they're generally true, otherwise they wouldn't be a generalization. In, in our churches, typically, we have overemphasized listening and hardly bothered with obedience. Now, now, bear with me just for a moment. You say every week you're banging on about what we should do. Are absolutely right. But we have overemphasized listening at the expense of obedience. Take Sundays, for example. This morning is all geared up about listening. You are listening to me or just tuned out. But those are the only two options, really. Or you can get up and walk out. And uh, yeah, that's right. That's very healthy. God, what a brilliant illustration. That's fantastic. Yeah, and you, you're welcome. See you guys. See, see, so you can do that. Now, some of you are going, I wish I had the guts to do that. I hope that door's locked and they can't get out and they have to come back in through here. Wouldn't that just be fantastic? So, so, so you can't get up and walk. Well, you could, if you can stomach it. Uh, you can listen or you can tune me out. Uh, and, and at the end of the sermon, people will come up to you on the door if you're the preacher uh, and they used to say, nice tie. These days they make some rude comment about my beard. Uh, and then some people will say, that was a very challenging word that you've listened to. But then what will happen typically in our typical church culture is that we'll go out into the week and then when you come back next week, no one will ask you how you got on putting last week's challenge into practice. We won't quiz you at the door to see if we'll let you in for another challenge. We will welcome you back so delighted that you've come again for another Sunday to listen to more challenge. Implicitly what we're saying is that the Christian life is challenge upon challenge upon challenge. It's about listening to it and listening to it and listening to it. And whether you do something about it, that's kind of optional. What would be truer to James was if we guarded the door and we asked you to explain how you had risen to last week's challenge and depending on your answer, we let you in for another one or sent you back out into the week to have another go at the one from last week. What a fantastic idea, Nancy. And, and, and I'm going to appoint our guardian on the door, Nancy Sloan Picasso, who next Sunday morning's going to be on the door and going to guard it for us because there's some truth in this, isn't there? So, so what we implicitly say is that the Christian life is about adding more listening, more knowledge. Our small groups traditionally can be like that. It's not a comment on our small groups in our church particularly, but it is a comment on small groups generally where the keen people go to the small group because they want to go deeper. Because the Sunday hasn't been deep enough. This has been all froth and up there and fluffy, right? 
But on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, you can get your Bibles open, the big leather ones that flop so nicely, and you can go deeper. And and effectively, what we're saying is that the Christian life is about listening to some stuff, and then if you want to go deeper, you listen to some more stuff about the stuff that you've already listened to, and that's for the deeper ones, the ones that will go deeper. And a subtle shift takes place in our Christian journey that I think we as churches are struggling from over a century of subtle shift that has turned Christian living into, or turned Christian obedience into listening and listening and listening some more. And what's happened is that our Christian obedience has become equated to attendance or involvement in a listening environment. Have you been a good Christian this week? I've been a church. Tick. I've been in my small group. Tick. I've hit my quiet time most days. Tick, tick, tick. And James says, no. Obedience, verse 20, get rid of some anger. Obedience, verse 21, get rid of some moral filth. Verse 21, uh, don't buy into any of the contemporary evils. Flappy birds. Just saying. Verse 26. Tight rain on your tongue. Verse 27. How many orphans and widows have you cared for this last week? How have you made sure that this last week you haven't remained polluted by the world? Do not merely listen. Look at what it says though. It haunts me this verse. Do not merely listen and so deceive yourselves. It's a deception that the Christian life is listening to truth and then some more truth and then some more truth. The truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said. That's what we're reminded about. But it sets you free as you choose to put it above you and to live, to be obedient in the light of it. We must together agree to fight to stand against, to make sure we're not deceived that listening becomes an end in itself. I can leave a sermon and be satisfied by the intellectual understanding I have received. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I can be pleased by what I've learnt. I can be pleased by a fresh way of looking at an old truth. And that if I'm not careful can be like my Christian experience. If we do that, verse 23 describes how ridiculous we've become. (laughs) Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says, like that's happening anywhere, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. It's a ridiculous picture. You stare intently at your own image and then you forget all about it. He's saying you stare intently on a Sunday morning between half past 11 and quarter past 12 intently into the Word 
And you can go so easily and live a life as if you cannot remember a word of what happened in those moments. You can leave your quiet time as if you cannot remember anything that you absorbed from God's Word in those moments. And it's laughable. But someone should forget what they look like. And James says, look, there's a huge deception going on in the churches. It's amazing how contemporary the Bible is, don't you think? There's a deception going on in the churches. They're beginning to believe that listening is enough. That listening is a mark of obedience. Well, how do we help? How do we make sure that we're not just listeners, but doers? Well, obedience is practical and so we need practical things to be learned in a practical way you you would not teach someone to drive just in the classroom well you might but it would be a mistake we do not teach people to live an obedient life by simply creating the classroom experience We apprentice people by teaching them a little and helping them do a lot. Isn't that the learning curve for things that are practical? That we learn a little bit and then we put it into practice and we put it into practice and we put it into practice and we put it into practice until it becomes part of who we are. But as churches, we put all our eggs into, I'm going to help people listen. And collectively, we do almost nothing about putting it into practice, putting it into practice, putting it into practice, putting it into practice. And what does that mean? It means that our learning is not just Sundays, but every day. And our learning is not just me, but all of us. And if I concentrate as much on the practice, on the obedience, as I do on the learning, I will create a revolution in my personal life. I have a whole shelf of books in this study here, on prayer. I will become a better prayer by spending one hour with someone who really prays and probably reading all those books, which effectively will tell me what I already know. I should pray. At home, I have a whole shelf on evangelism and witness and stuff. One day with someone who knows how it is to share Jesus in their ordinary life will probably propel me to be more evangelistic than reading all of those books which in all their different ways tell me I should talk about Jesus. And so it's not the learning that we need, but somehow a way of life that helps us learn a little and then put it into practice. Uh, 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 we need to find ways of doing this. Maybe it's, it, you know, I, I was joking with Nancy about the door thing, but, but maybe it's about, you know, on, on, we, we do something one Sunday and then we, we, we work out in the week what we're going to do about the next Sunday. We just spend the time talking about how we got on with what we were doing. Because that's what we need. That's what I need. I need to get with people who can do it better than me. And if I have something to offer, I need to allow people close enough to learn what I have learned because practical things are learned in a practical way. Hey, we all want the blessing, don't we? That's down at the end of verse 25. Do you want the blessing that's there in verse 25? 
Not sure now whether you want it. I can understand that. No. We want the blessing. We want God's kingdom to come. Not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. It's why in our missional communities we put so much emphasis on on sharing life together, intentionally creating opportunities that we might learn practical things about the Christian life in a practical way. And hey, sometimes people in churches, they just go, do you know what? I just want to be fed. I just want to be fed. And I understand that you just want to be fed because it's not nice being hungry. So we all want to be fed. But Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus said we get fed Not in this moment, but we get fed by what we do as a result of this moment. And that's our choice. If you're longing for this church to feed you, you will keep going hungry. You know what it's like when you have one cracker, and before you know it, you've had about, I don't know, 31, 32. Now that's just me. It's awkward, isn't it? You know, because it doesn't quite satisfy And honestly, this doesn't quite satisfy. We think maybe it does. And our spiritual life is up here at one o'clock on a Sunday, lunchtime. But by Monday morning, it's slipping down. And by Wednesday, it's all. And by Friday, we're in a right pickle. It doesn't quite do it because it can't. This will always leave you hungry. And so what we instinctively think that we're going to do is because this leaves me hungry, I'm going to do more of it to feed me up. And Jesus says, no, whatever you understand about my life, My food, my nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. It's a foolish man and a wise man, Jesus said. They both listened. It wasn't the foolish man didn't listen. They both listened. It was only the wise man that ended up doing what he heard. And I see again and again, I see it in my own life, I see it in our lives, how we, we listen and we don't quite put it into practice in the way that we should. And the storms come and they cause havoc in our lives. That's back to the trials, isn't it, that James was talking about uh, at the last time. Uh, and it knocks us off course. Why? Why Why is my life not built on this solid rock? I've been listening to God's word. I've been reading God's word. I've been studying it all my life. Jesus would say, look, you've got to understand the wise guy is the one who can say, look, in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way. The wise guy is the one that can say, right now, this week, this is what I'm putting into practice. This is what I'm doing about it. What would be an act of obedience for you? This week. Let's pray.